And so, and as an immigrant Muslim, frankly, it wasn't a choice. It was forced on me, right? When you, when existence is your resistance, the choice to whether or not to be politicized is not a choice. You know, I often say to people who make a choice not to be engaged in politics, I hope you're at least aware of your privilege in being able to turn a blind eye to a sphere in which the rights of your neighbors are being eviscerated. And not just your neighbors, but your kids and your grandkids too. And I think one of the challenges of the movement is the need for everybody to lean in, to recognize how despite our various privileges, we are all inextricably implicated. We share a common future. And unless we come together to share collective action in the moment, in the present time slice, we are basically kicking the future off a cliff. You're listening to the Sovereign Society Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Riccio, and my greatest passion is to help you transform your doubt into the courage you crave to activate your thriving business from the inside out. As a Kundalini business mentor, speaker, and modern medicine priestess, I believe the world's ready for your medicine more than ever. By embracing all facets of our human experience, we have the power to cultivate a conscious tomorrow today. Every Wednesday, I gather some of the greatest leaders, teachers, and revolutionists of our time to talk about all things social justice, personal empowerment, and what it takes for you to up-level your business and life. It's time for more good people making good money, doing great things in the world. Best believe this is the place that's going to take you there. If you're ready to unleash your medicine and revolutionize the world as we know it, I invite you to dive in and join us on this wild ride. Hello, 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 and welcome to a new episode of the Sovereign Society podcast. Let me just say that this episode, I could have talked for hours, (laughs) but I've got a very, very busy man here, and to have congressional candidate for California's 12th district, aka you San Francisco peeps, Shahed Batar, I'm so honored and so grateful that He took the time to have this conversation with me because as you've been seeing on Instagram, I've been so active politically. And if I'm not working on my business, I'm literally watching videos and reading up about what's going on because I give a shit about my future. And I want to make sure that we are setting precedent, not just for me, but for the future of humanity and our children to come. And this is someone who is actively participating and actively showing up to bring education and awareness and to speak truth about uh, what's faulty, what needs to be reevaluated and what and how we can do better. And so after the Iowa caucus on Monday, we were both hungry to talk about this this part of the conversation. And um, especially because Shahid's going to outseat Nancy Pelosi, I'm calling it. He's going to outseat Nancy Pelosi. He's hungry and he's here to bring big ideas that need to be really implemented to experience this radical shift, not just in California's 12th district or in California, but throughout the country and throughout the world. We've been working on these outdated systems that 
need a boost. They need a refresh. I mean, we're in the Aquarian age now, this post-2012 world where sensitivities are increased and heightened, and we need to really allow ourselves to be aware of the times and the changing times and how do we evolve, not just personally, but politically, and to really cultivate a solid container, a sacred container for change. And this is someone who's actively embodying that and being that. And the fact that I have this Stanford professor and fellow burner with me, I just love that. I was able to get real and talk to him about topics such as psychedelics and plant medicines, um, the NFL. We talked about the war on drugs. We talked about Medicare for all, Green New Deal, how there's so many more things we could have talked about without a doubt. But what we have here to share with you all is to really think about the evolution of this country and this political process and how you can begin to reclaim your power and how we can really reclaim America because the way things are going, this is the wake up call to implement radical change. And so Shahid, he's someone who is a nonprofit leader. He's a grassroots organizer and he's a movement musician. And he's really here to help bring movements for peace and immigrant immigrant rights and black lives, the Occupy movement. And he's been doing this work for quite some time. And we talked about that in this episode too. And so I'm so excited for you to really dive in and to listen to his brilliancy because he has so many great, not even radical, but revolutionary ideas for social justice and these social movements so that we can really bring forth equality in a way that we've been craving as humanity. And so this is I'm so honored and grateful and excited to be sharing with you this conversation uh, because this rise of democratic socialism, there's nothing to fear. It's actually what we've been praying for. And socialism has been running for the corporate elites and the billionaires, but for the working class people, it's time for everyone to be treated as humans and as equals. And I know this is something Shahid is really driven and passionate about. So if you are in the San Francisco, uh, California 12th district, make sure you especially tune in. And even if you're not, you can support this man. Like here I am in Joshua tree and I'm, I'm supporting him and his campaign and sharing his truth and, and his platform. And this is, this is how we implement change this election season, because, Buckle up, guys. This is going to be a wild ride these next nine months uh, until November going into uh, this political process. And it's important for us to stay woke. It's important for us to have these conversations. So to have this conversation, I'm so excited for you to hear all about it. Make sure you tag me at Sabrina Riccio and tag me at Sovereign Society Podcast. Let me know that you're tuning in. And of course, Tag my dear friend Shahid here at Shahid for Change, S-H-A-H-I-D-4-F-O-R, Change. And just 
let us know what you think of this conversation. And if you have loved ones in the area, educate them, share this conversation. This is a powerful one that we need to talk about because this is how we start to implement revolutionary change in this world and in this country. So I'm really excited to share with you about democratic socialism and the future of America with this congressional candidate who's ready to outseat Nancy Pelosi. Enjoy this conversation with Shahid Batar. Hello, 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 and welcome to an episode of the Sovereign Society podcast. I've been patiently waiting for. I have congressional candidate for California's 12th district, Shahid Batar. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. This is such an honor. You're very kind, Sabrina. Thanks so much for bringing me on. Yes. So I can't dive into our conversation without first talking about Iowa. This has been insane. Like, we would think we got this figured out before. And the fact that we still, it's Tuesday, all over there on the East Coast, as we record right now, it's one o'clock in the afternoon, and there's still no results. Right. And this is after, mind you, literally years of a sustained multi-million dollar effort by hundreds, if not thousands of people on the ground trying to influence this result and the idea that our democracy can't produce results. And I want to particularly emphasize the role of technology here, the problematic role of technology and infrastructure. We used to have very simple election infrastructure that was paper ballots. They were verifiable. They were secure and they allowed us to count them. And now that we shift to electronic tools, it's one thing to use technology. It's another thing to use corporate proprietary technology. It's another thing to use corporate proprietary technology funded by one of the campaigns. The fact that Pete Buttigieg is showing that. And there I saw there was also some um, with Joe Biden as well. And I, you know, I, I'm sure that the, there are going to be lots of strands to unravel here. But the point is we shouldn't be using corporate election infrastructure. There's no reason that any jurisdiction anywhere in the free world should use a corporate platform to drive its elections. It's just, it's insane, frankly. There's not a single good reason for it. And it reflects, I think, the crisis in democracy wrought by neoliberal capitalism. We have privatized so many things. We're even privatizing our election administration, which renders it entirely unreliable. And when people claim that capitalism and democracy go hand in hand, I mean, this is just the latest example that, frankly, the two couldn't be in further tension. There was a historical moment when capitalism helped conduce democracy because it helped fracture feudal concentrated economic power. And that led to the creation of a middle class that was unable to clamor for political rights and the emergence of democracy. But that was very historically circumstantial. What we see today is that capitalism not only allows the runaway economic stratification that undermines the principle of one person, one vote. But then also here, we see this sustained privatization across all of our traditional government functions. Uh, you know, it's already hitting schools with the movement for you know charters that are undermining both public education and organized labor in one fell swoop. We're seeing it here with, with election administration and the consequences are entirely predictable. People are losing faith in our democracy and it's largely because we've privatized it. Totally. I think between the 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 impeachment and this whole process, I feel like caucuses are even outdated in yeah. that sense. 
I wouldn't link it directly to impeachment, but yes. Right. Caucuses but it's are, so, but people, but the, you're talking about the faith in the process. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where it's at. People have already been so fed up with this impeachment process that we've had zero witnesses that were able to show up. Like, how is that even a case? <laughs> how is that even under, like, it's, it's just been, this has been a lot, I feel like coming up to the surface to bring more of an awareness so that justice can finally prevail. Yes. Well, and I think you're right to observe that across a lot of different processes, people are losing faith in our processes. Everything from campaign finance and the way that it uh, facilitates corruption, particularly corporate corruption, to right. yeah, the you know charade of an impeachment process that didn't even include most of the strongest charges. In fact, all of the strongest charges that the House could have brought against our criminal president were left on the table because Speaker Pelosi refused to bring them forward. Right. And the fiasco that focused on a political partisan crime, uh, which is a crime and should be a legitimate basis for impeachment and would be if the process were legal. But because it's more political than it is legal, we know that GOP senators won't vote for an impeachment based on a political crime, which is why it was so important to include the president's corruption, Speaker Pelosi's refusal to do that, to explore the president's self-enrichment at public expense, which is specifically constitutionally prohibited. That's the emoluments clause. Speaker Pelosi's refusal to do that basically gave away the game at the outset. You know, the, the impeachment, again, charade was basically a theatrical exercise in the House wanting to make it look like it was showing up for work. And, you know, ultimately giving the Senate a uh, fairly easy job of, of stiff arming any meaningful attempt at accountability. I do hope to see our criminal president impeached and removed from office. I do hope that the Senate votes to remove him from office. I don't have a great deal of hope that it will precisely because the case was so weak. And unfortunately, right. you know, I did, in fact, predict and did everything. And I mean, what do we expect? We have a reality TV star as president. Indeed. <laughs> So it's just feeling more of that. And I mean, it was it was also pretty interesting watching his um, Super Bowl ad on, you know, how he's he's supporting people of color and all these things after calling them the players that take a kneel sons of bitches. And so there's so many inconsistencies that are happening. And I don't know if you're seeing this, but this is what I'm feeling. I feel like the progressive base, all of this that's unfolding is just fueling our fire even more that I don't think they really know what's coming up because all of us are fed up. People who actually care about this process, people who are seeing firsthand what's going on, consciously seeing what's happening and ethically seeing what's happening just, I mean, I was watching with the Young Turks, with Jank talking about how with like with Iowa that happened, it that was it's not about the the delegates, but it's about the press and the fact that this mess that we are experiencing with Iowa, it's just making things a lot like even cloudier as to seeing that clear vision. I feel like these next what. 10 months is going to be, nine months is going to be, it's going to be a battle, unfortunately. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, and I, I don't even think it's hyperbolic to say that the, to some extent the future of humanity is at stake. Um, you know, two long running trends I would locate in the context of having led us here. You know, one of them is the generational change that when you speak about the progressive base growing enraged, we have already won 
the establishment doesn't know it yet, and there's nothing they can do to stop us. And the reason we've already won is simply because generational change is inexorable. Mm-hmm. And the class of corporate capitalists so overplayed their hand that about 12 years ago, when the financial crisis happened, the upward redistribution, the willingness to bail out banks instead of Main Street, you know, the, the discrimination for Wall Street against Main Street, I think so radicalized a generation that we are now seeing the maturation of the occupied generation. Mm-hmm. You know, the boomers are already uh, transitioning. Millennials are the largest generational voting bloc. They are, uh, without any question, the most progressive generation the republic has ever seen. And uh, there's nothing, again, that the centrists or the boomers or the corporations can do to stop us. A second trend that's worth noting, and this I would particularly locate in the uh, Trump era, is gaslighting. And you spoke to how the fog of war, <clears throat> which effectively eclipsed Iowa last night by not having results, we are all sort of in this um, space of, of just not knowing the facts. And that is a hallmark of authoritarianism. It is absolutely uh, a critical ingredient of it. And I see not only Trump playing into those hands, but Pete Buttigieg too, by claiming the victory in a state that he can't claim to have won. There are no results public. And to the result extent there were any results that were disclosed, they certainly did not support the conclusion that he won that caucus. Um, you know, his role with respect to the app, his campaign's role, I should say, with respect to the app, his campaign's role with respect to suppressing the last poll by the Des Moines Register. You know, there's a lot of places where where you're just not getting information. And it's not just Trump lying incessantly on camera that is forcing people to wonder what is going on. It is also the actions, unfortunately, by corporate centrist Democratic candidates that is fueling this erosion of truth and objective fact on which our democracy relies. And it's one thing to have diverging opinions. I certainly I think we're all entitled to them. I would hope that we could at least be grounded in a common set of facts on which to, uh, you know, diverge based on our opinions and our ideas. But at the moment, we're simply, I think, fighting for independent facts. And at the moment, you know, not knowing. Transparency. Indeed. And, And when there's no transparency, it makes it really easy for officials and institutions to lie and get away with it. That's what's so dangerous now. It is our democracy at stake and the credibility of our institutions is, uh, is particularly what we can't rely on. And I was up till 1 a.m. watching the mainstream media. I don't like all my stations were asleep and it was they were all like pissed off that Bernie like this is Bernie. Bernie wanted this. Bernie wanted more transparent. It's like, are you kidding me? Right. Right. Well, this is the predictable effort of an establishment to protect itself. And we should internalize and interpret, particularly corporate media through that lens. You know, there's certainly in the same way that we can't trust our institutions and our electoral institutions are increasingly suspect and we can't trust, for instance, you know, executive branch institutions, uh, you know, other institutions that we increasingly have to be skeptical of include corporate media sources, which seem so willing to lean on the scale editorially uh, and deny, I think, what so many of the rest of us already know. And, you know, one way I'd particularly uh, demonstrate this or a moment in time that I think really laid that case bare was when Bernie Sanders uh, had his interview on Fox News or when he went on Joe Rogan and you see a voice aligned with human rights, aligned with the needs of working Americans and aligned with future generations, reaching and appealing to audiences of even conservative and right-wing media outlets. And what that proves is that despite our differences and the dramatic divide 
across our country between left and right, we still as Americans have common interests and they include taking care of our neighbors. They include ensuring that nobody has to go homeless just because they got sick. They include taking care of future generations and not kicking them off a climate cliff. These are interests that unite us. These are interests that are fueling that generational sensibility uh, for change and, and to replace corporate profit with human rights at the center of our social and public policy. That's why so many people back Bernie Sanders from all walks of life. It's why he has the most diverse, uh, uh, most numerous support uh, base of any presidential candidate. It's why he reached uh, the threshold in number of donations and supporters that he has before any candidate in U.S. history. And it's also why the corporate media is arraying itself to oppose him. Um, and at the end of the day, I think they can try all the games they want. It reminds me of like Mortal Kombat and it's like the last round and they're like, finish him, you know? And I, this is what... Unfortunately, this is part of the process. All of this has to be cut, has to be brought up to the surface to be transmuted. And this is this is how it is. I mean, this is the last straw that they're trying to manipulate. But this is the thing as a millennial, what I think about like they call our generation the dark night of the soul generation, right? Like I hadn't heard that exactly, but okay. Yeah. So we were in puberty when 9-11 happened. We were in college when the 2008 market crashed, and then we got out of school, no jobs, all the student debt. Yeah. And so when 2012 came, we were all out of school, and that's where I felt like the psychedelic renaissance came back, and there was a lot more of this radical expression because we felt like we weren't being heard since a young age. And it's pretty fascinating to see we are the most educated generation this this country has ever seen. We majority of us, we were conditioned. You go to high school, you go to college and now here you go with all this debt. And, you know, they they mock us and they say we don't know what we're talking about, but we're furious. And this is our future and the generation below us, like all they've seen is is war since they were born. So what makes you think that these two generations, millennials, Gen Zs, aren't hungry for that radical change? So how do you see like this rise of democratic socialism? Because even when I was in high school, we had like in my AP government class, we had like a mock debate and because uh, it was 2007 and we had a mock debate and we had a socialist party and we won. Right. <laughs> Somewhat predictably, given what people were going through. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think of is this is this rise of democratic socialism? And to those who don't understand what democratic socialism, what would be your explanation of it? Yeah, I would say that democratic socialism is about replacing corporate profit with human needs as the, and, and human rights as the center of our public policy. There's a spectrum along which people array themselves as socialists. And there are people who call for more or less public ownership of the owns of production and public uh, goods. I particularly want to make sure that we treat hospitals like the fire department instead of the yacht club. And I particularly want to make sure that we nationalize fossil fuel companies and weapons manufacturers to make sure that we're not enriching private corporations at the public expense. There's a whole litany of industries that make profit their entire business model and here's in public predation. Those industries we need to stop incentivizing. And that's what monetization is. When we allow the market to allocate social goods in a way that denies their availability to people who need them, and this is the question, is the difference between need and want. 
there are things that I think it makes sense for us to treat as objects of exchange, like yachts, maybe luxury housing. There are things that we should not treat as objects of exchange, like medicine, like basic shelter and food. Those are human needs. They should be human rights. To me, that's where my democratic socialism inheres. Another way to look at that, I see democratic socialism as a public policy reflection of intersectional feminism, as well as post-colonial liberation. I am a child of colonialism. The British Empire uh, occupied the land of my parents' birth for four centuries. And in, as an immigrant to the United States, I take very seriously our founding commitments. For instance, the repudiation of aristocracy, which we seem to have abandoned, for instance, in the face of everything from family dynasties, you know, the Pelosi's, for instance, the I'm running for a seat here in California to deny a family dynasty the opportunity to pass on a house seat that it's held for a generation to yet another one. And this is a family that already has a political dynasty, including other members of its family who served in the U.S. House, who've been big city mayors, one of whom is the governor of California as we speak. Um, in addition to that fight against aristocracy, our CIF, our, I see our founding commitments to principles like the First Amendment and the right to participate in a political process, or the Fourth Amendment, and the right to privacy, or the Fifth Amendment, and the right to due process, or the Fourteenth Amendment, and the right to equality, all of them eroded by presumptions of government power to monitor us without suspicion or warrants, to uh, abuse or even kill Americans with impunity, even without charge or trial, to lie to Congress under oath and get away with it. You know, this, this willingness to embrace mass constitutional violations in secret to me also threatens not just my vision of socialism, but my vision of democracy. So I often say that I somewhat, I don't wanna say uniquely, but as I look at the spectrum of other democratic socialist voices in the country, I, I do uh, think that I'm uniquely poised to put the D back in democratic socialism, because at the same time that I aspire to ensuring a more equitable <clears throat> distribution of resources and the widespread availability of basic needs, I'm also concerned with just guarding the back door of our democracy and making sure that we don't fall prey to authoritarianism. And there's a whole mm -hmm. bunch of vectors that are, that are attack vectors, you might say, that are threatening our democracy. One of them, and I see this demonstrated in stark relief in Iowa last night, is the erosion of voting rights and just the reliability of our majoritarian political process. That's the front door. The back door is crumbling too, though, and that's judicial independence. I want to press on this for a minute. Many people in our nation's history historically have thought that judicial life tenure is necessary to establish judicial independence. And that was true at one point in time. It is no longer true. In the wake of the weaponization of our courts, and particularly the weaponization of the Supreme Court confirmation process, judicial life tenure undermines the independence of the judiciary. It reinforces its politicization. And that's why one of my proposals in Congress after replacing Nancy Pelosi as San Francisco's voice in the House is to end judicial life tenure and introduce, particularly for the Supreme Court, staggered 18-year terms. That will help us recover the courts uh, as a means of preserving counter-majoritarian rights. It's a critical part of the constitutional design. Again, at the same time as the front door of our elections is crumbling, the back door of our courts have been shut, and we need to make sure that that's, that remains open. And then from the sides, executive secrecy on the one hand, impeding judicial review, preventing legislative oversight, and then on the other, mass surveillance inhibiting dissent. Our democracy is crumbling on all fronts. And it's, it's why I say, again, I put the D back in democratic socialism. I do 
aim to establish socialist goals, I also mean to defend the democracy of our republic that we were bequeathed and to guard that legacy for future generations. Yes. So what really sparked your interest into diving deeper into politics and in the whole process? What was it that was like, this is what I'm, this is, this is it. This is what I'm here to do. Uh, I mean, maybe it was the 9-11 attacks. You know, I was in law school uh, from 2000 to 2003, and I went to law school to fight big corporations. I'd worked for a series of banks in Chicago to put myself through night school to get my undergrad degree. And I was in the 90s. I was working on some of the deals that in the 2000s crashed the economy. And I saw the corruption at the time. And I went to Stanford, and my goal there was to study antitrust law and then work for the Justice Department of the Federal Trade Commission and bust big business. And I did the first thing. I got the job. At the same time as the Bush administration shut down effectively the antitrust section of the Department of Justice, and it's frankly never opened for business since. And uh, one of the reasons that I particularly have been forced into responding to our constitutional crisis is that at the same time as the Bush administration was shutting down antitrust enforcement, a constitutional crisis was erupting under our feet in the form particularly of the reemergence of the noxious soup of xenophobia, racism, and militarism that we have seen in the world before and we have appropriately described before as fascism. Many Americans became alarmed after the 2016 election about the emergence of fascism in the United States. I've been concerned about the fascism in the United States since 2001. And so, and as an immigrant Muslim, frankly, it wasn't a choice. It was forced on me. Right. Right? When you, when existence is your resistance, the choice to whether or not to be politicized is not a choice. You know, I often say to people who make a choice not to be engaged in politics, I hope you're at least aware of your privilege in being able to turn a blind eye to a sphere in which the rights of your neighbors are being eviscerated. And not just your neighbors, but your kids and your grandkids too. And I think one of the challenges of the movement is the need for everybody to lean in, to recognize how despite our various privileges, we are all inextricably implicated. We share a common future. And unless we come together to share collective action in the moment, in the present time slice, we are basically kicking the future off a cliff. And that's something I'm absolutely unwilling to do. So it's a combination of, again, the emergence of fascism, being a vulnerable minority, my concern for the future. You know, I don't have children of my own, thankfully, but I do have nine nephews and nieces. I have any number of friends with children. Uh, and I care about them all very much. And I frankly wish that many of, I, this is not true of my friends with kids. I think they care about their kids plenty, but I do see many conservatives with children who seem not to care about their kids very much or instead to be you know, shrouded in, within veils of ignorance and not to understand how their actions unfortunately make the lives of their own kids and grandkids worse. But I would just, if I, for me, the compulsion to politics is some combination of responding to the crisis to the moment, protecting the future, defending my neighbors, uh, and, and frankly, holding our country true to what we already said on paper. My family came here to be free. Uh, and I take the lessons and principles and the legacy of our democracy very, very seriously. I, I take it as a great deal of privilege that as an immigrant, I have an opportunity to defend those principles. I wish I didn't have to. Uh, but as long as the corporate establishment is going to so relentlessly abuse we, the people of the United States, I am more than happy to rise into our defense. I love that. Yeah, I was raised by immigrants. My grandparents came from Italy and just to see, you know, them starting businesses out here, a lot of that American dream is kind of crumbling because of this corporate greed and 
it's hard for the little man to kind of set precedent. And this is, I want to start talking a lot about the policies and the things, especially in California and of course in your district. So, um, this is in a and something that I've seen just as my family owns a restaurant. And, you know, a lot they were very nervous about this $15 minimum wage increase because they're already having a hard time paying taxes and they're already, you know, part of the working class with the employees and the insurance and all these things. And they're paying their taxes, but what about these bigger companies? Why aren't they doing their fair share? you know, that have all these write-ups. And so how can we start to bring more favorability to the working class and to really help support the American dream of entrepreneurship and all these pieces that, you know, that allow this country to really thrive? The very first one in my mind is Medicare for all. At the moment, millions of Americans are not only unsure how to gain access to medications that they need or how to take care of their elderly relatives or how to ensure that their kids can get to doctors when they need them. But they constrain their life choices, where they live, what they do for work, in order to make sure that their family members or themselves, that they have access, that they have insurance. And, and basing health insurance on the market is a perfect example, of thing, I think, of where we're mislaying our priorities and we're putting corporate profits, particularly for health insurance companies and for pharmaceutical companies, <clears throat> before public health and before human rights. And I think when we look about look at the need to make uh, life fairer and more equitable, the very first thing we can do is make sure that basic human needs are not objects of exchange. And again, healthcare is, is at the top of my list. Medicare for all would do that. There's a viable proposal introduced by Representative Pramila Jayapal from Washington that the House would likely support and pass if Nancy Pelosi let the House vote on it, which she has refused to do steadfastly. So in the national movement to secure universal health care, I think there are probably uh, two of two particularly long levers that we the people can pull. One of them is electing Bernie Sanders to be our next president. The other one is removing Nancy Pelosi from the House of Representatives. Uh, and you know, between supporting Bernie and aiming to deliver California for his Not Me Us campaign and proposing to replace Nancy Pelosi in the House, I hope to be helpful in both of those endeavors. Uh, another thing we can do when we talk about improving the lives of working Americans and making sure that we preserve the American dream is the Green New Deal. And I want to specifically unpack the just transition and the federal jobs guarantee. These are critical aspects to make sure that everybody can come along and participate and thrive in the new green economy. There are going to be so many jobs that we need filled in that green economy that are going to be tough to fill under our current market infrastructure because none of those functions necessarily create profit. And I want to, the most uh, obvious example here in California is getting into our national forests and practicing indigenous forest management techniques that reduce the propensity of catastrophic wildfires. Dozens of people have died in California. Millions of people have been affected by particulate uh, matter in the air, you know, air quality uh, for a period two years ago was worse than Beijing. That need not be the case. We can get on the front side of those wildfires if we deploy a generation of people to do what Native Americans once did before the genocide. How do we do that under an industrial corporate capitalist model? We can't because there's no profit in doing that, but there's a massive savings to society in the form of dozens of deaths and billions of dollars in fire damage that we can prevent. 
So how do you deal with prevention as a, uh, in, in a capitalist system, you can't basically, which is why we need to have robust government intervention a federal jobs guarantee. And that will create opportunities, not only for working Americans to have access to the opportunities they need, but they will also create opportunities as a society for us to pursue the kinds of high labor intensive climate resiliency projects that we're not poised to undertake at the moment. The just transition is an equally important uh, recipe in this soup. And that's the opportunity for everything from vocational training uh, to uh, other sorts of retooling opportunities to make sure that the workforce of yesterday comes along and that we're making sure that people who, for instance, have worked in fossil fuel reliant industries, that they can participate in new green industries, that people who might have uh, you know, worked, for instance, before in petrochemicals at least have opportunities to learn about the engineering and other sorts of functions required in Installing wind turbines, for instance, that's just an example. Uh, we have so many opportunities if we're able to meet the needs of working American people. And I think the just transition, uh, the federal jobs guarantee, those parts of the Green New Deal, and the right to health care embodied in Medicare for all those to me are the top lines in terms of ensuring equal opportunity. I do just want to give a quick nod. You mentioned the unfairness to small businesses introduced by large businesses that don't pay their fair share in taxes and large scale corporate tax evasion is an absolute must. And frankly, I'm glad that this has emerged as an opportunity, as a, an object of some transpartisan consensus. Um, and I'm eager to help build that consensus when I get to Washington. Yeah. Cause I've just seen like so many, you know, family friends who, who own businesses and they're like, I'm paying 54% in taxes. And then you see like big companies like P&G that took over yeah. 10 ads yeah. on Super Bowl and then worked with Olay to say, hey, text this number and we'll donate. So that's more of the write-offs that they get on top of the, you know, the probably $30 million they spent on ads over Super Bowl. It's part of the mess that is just this vicious cycle that isn't addressed enough. You mentioned the Super Bowl, and I'd love to just take a crack at that if I can. Yeah. Uh, the NFL is one of a few sports leagues that enjoy a statutory immunity from antitrust liability. That means that the Congress has said to the NFL, you can abuse competition and your consumers all you want, and we're going to ensure that federal regulators can't bust you for undermining competition. It's interesting here because that very same sports league, the NFL, silences its players and blacklists those, I'm thinking particularly of Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick, yep. Right? Silences players and blacklists them for engaging in peaceful, silent, respectful indications of concern for the rights of their neighbors. And I particularly want to contrast this with a moment very early in the Super Bowl when there was a moment of silence for Kobe Bryant. And the idea that you can have on the Super Bowl a moment of silence in which all the players participate for Kobe Bryant, but you can't have in a regular NFL game a player take a knee to mourn the preventable lives of our neighbors lost to police violence is that double standard in the first place is problematic. But what I want to particularly focus on here is Congress's role in supporting that double standard by offering the NFL a public subsidy in the form of an immunity from antitrust liability. Among the things I want to do in Congress is rescind that exception to ensure that if the NFL is going to abuse the rights of its players, and if the NFL is going to disrespect the simply the rights to live of the people who are putting the money in the 
pockets of the owners that we, the people, are not offering that industry a subsidy. And, and I see the Super Bowl offering in very stark relief this, uh, this, this opportunity to contrast how much money ends up in the NFL's pocket and, and how little the league needs the public subsidy that Congress has conveyed. I, I'd like to see antitrust law generally re uh, invigorated, resuscitated, revived, and expanded to include not only sports leagues that are currently exempted from it, but also political markets. We see political parties and candidates and politicians do routinely to voters what companies are categorically prohibited from doing to consumers. Pepsi and Coke can't say, okay, you take this part of town, I'll take that part of town, but that's what Democratic and Republican state legislators do every 10 years when they redistrict their respective states. Here in California, we thankfully have an independent redistricting commission. So gerrymandering here is much less pronounced. In fact, it's really not a problem at all here in California, and it is a really severe problem in many other parts of the country. The Supreme Court recently said it can't do anything about instances of partisan gerrymandering. Extending antitrust law to include political markets would give judges a uh, justiciable set of well-established established grounds on which to intervene to defend the rights of voters to a fair, transparent, meaningful electoral process. Well, and then, so there's a few questions that um, I received from people when I they heard that I was chatting with you. And so um, someone, I live out here in Joshua Tree, and someone, one of the the guys that stands outside the farmer's market getting people to register to vote. Yeah. Uh, his name's Rich. And he's taught, he asked about HR 19, which um, talking about the, the drug prices. And so how will HR 19 really impact these drug prices? And are there any other aspects that are really advantageous to the drug industry? Like how do we start to really tackle this, this insanity with drug prices? I can talk a little bit about how we tackle the insanity with drug prices. I don't have HR 19 in front of me, so mm -hmm. I can't say it specifically. But among the things that we can do for the, the most important thing we can do for drug pricing is allow the government to leverage its formidable purchasing power. This is exactly what a bipartisan Congress in just the last 10 years refused to let the government do. That's part of what the ACA was, was denying government purchasing power the opportunity to drive down costs for consumers. Another way to put that is that we, the people, when we purchase in bulk, we have enormous leverage over pharmaceutical companies that we resign because the law effectively written by pharmaceutical companies at the moment doesn't let the government do that on our behalf. So ensuring that we can leverage consumer purchasing power is step one. I would like to frankly see us nationalize the pharmaceutical industry. There's a huge opportunity here to reduce the inefficiencies in the form of the administrative costs, uh, the form of the corporate profit that could be plowed back into research and development. A lot of the pharmaceutical companies say that they need to have uh, these runaway profits because it's the only way for them to be able to afford the R&D, the research and design assays that develop new pharmaceuticals. Well, if that were true, there wouldn't be these you know, billions and billions of dollars in corporate profit that is effectively surplus. And if we nationalize those industries, we'd be able to rededicate that to actually developing the pharmaceuticals that respond to needs and not just the market. It's interesting, for instance, that you have so much research and development on uh, you know, effectively non-life-saving pharmaceuticals. I'm thinking, for instance, of like Viagra. When you have life-saving medications that are not being developed because the financial market for their sale is not as enormous. And that, I think, is another example of our mislaid priorities. So it's not just the cost 
of pharmaceuticals, but it's also the research priorities are market-driven and those relate and drive ultimately uh, what I would describe as violations of human rights, if we have the opportunity as a civilization to develop medications that actually meet human need, that's what we should be focused on, not on effectively cosmetic opportunities for people. I think this is uh, a, a perfect example where, where we should be putting human need at the center of an equation that we have displaced it with corporate profit. And, and that's among the things that we can do to curtail uh, the cost of pharmaceuticals. The last thing just to put on the table here is Medicare for all. Among the things that Medicare for All would do is ensure that medications are free at the point of prescription uh, and at the point of service. And while it you know, still requires resources, of course, that's ultimately what our tax dollars and our government can pay for. I particularly would like to see us invest the public dollars in those kinds of resources instead of missiles, bombs, and aircraft carriers you know, meeting you know, yesterday's supposed national security needs. Uh, I would rather meet the human needs of people today than the perceived false and fraudulent national security day, uh, needs of yesterday. Yeah, and I want to dive in a little more about um, Medicare for All. And it's pretty fascinating to me. So in 2012, I was struck by lightning. And oh, wow. <laughs> are you okay? I'm here. Wow. You're <laughs> by light. Yeah, my dog and I. Wow. So the uh, high levels of paranoia, psychosis, PTSD that I um, experienced from that, my nervous system got shot. Um, so being able to, I spent all of my money essentially on healing, health and well-being. Um, thing is, is like my insurance covers acupuncture, but didn't cover um, chiropractic. It doesn't cover naturopathic medicine. They just wanted to give me a whole bunch of pharmaceuticals. How do we make sure that this Medicare for All is actually giving us, offering us an opportunity um, to get the services we want, like naturopathic medicine, which some states, their insurance covers naturopathic medicine, and it's only con continuing to increase through plant medicine, through um, more of these supplemental and making sure that our what it is that we want to help us heal and the things, because now ever since then, I'm extremely, extremely, extremely sensitive. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these pharmaceuticals that they wanted to give me, I just, I, my body was like, mm, stay away. Seeing the, you know, the manipulation of a lot of these, these pills of what they can do to my nervous system in a way that isn't actually supportive. So how do we make sure that one, uh, Medicare for all covers these naturopathic and these other, um, Eastern, uh, types of medicines and two places like Canada, I have family friends that have waited three years for procedures because they, they're on like a wait list. How do we make sure that these services are available for us when we need it so that we can really live life. Great questions. And I'm so sorry, first of all, just to learn that that happened to you. And I'm so glad you're still with us. And I'm uh, <sighs> you know, grateful to whatever the medical uh, interventions that, you know, uh, allowed you to be having this conversation now. Plant medicine. Right. Up. I want to dive deeper into that too. So, but I want to answer that question first though. 
on the Medicare for All piece and, and how to make it work here, I, one of the critical parts to understand about Medicare for All is that it doesn't replace the delivery of healthcare with government healthcare. You still have in a Medicare for All world hospitals and medical systems and doctors who work for themselves. It's just the insurance part of the healthcare process that we're nationalizing. And that is to say, it could empower consumers, you know, people who are used to private health insurance, like HMO schemes that limit your options to in-network providers, right? right? Many people are used to this sort of game. Medicare for all would release patient choice because you wouldn't be constrained either to any in-network system or to any particular choice of healthcare mode delivery. You could choose as a consumer, as a voter, as a, a patient, a person needing services, what services to avail yourself of. And, and what doctor? What doctor, what stuff mm -hmm. of doctor? Is it an integrative doctor? Is it an MD, a DO? Is it a, is it a chiropractor? Is it acupuncture? You know, the idea that, of Medicare for all not only increases patient security, but it increases patient choice. And that's a critical thing for us to recognize and understand. If we contrast it with many other countries that have provided universal health care, Britain is a good example where the entire NHS is public owned. In the United States, no one's talking about nationalizing the hospitals. So when you talk about wait times, part of the key there is to ensure that the delivery of health care remains private, even as the insurance part of the, the insurance aspect effectively is nationalized. Um, the point of Medicare for all is not, you know, a lot of people describe it as free health care. It's health care that's free at the point of service that we still collectively pay for through government. That's part of what taxation spending, you know, the government raises money through a number of other mechanisms, including printing money, issuing bonds. You know, there's the same ways that we pay for aircraft carriers could be the same way that we pay for doctors. That's what Medicare for all is. And if we approach it with that kind of uh, shared commitment, it would enable individual patients and their families to make uh, choices that reflect their own decisions rather than the impositions of health insurance administrators who limit patient choices. Yeah, because that's just something I've, you know, I, it happened in 2012. And um, right before then, I was I was seeing um, a lot of the manipulation and the mind control that was happening um, through like I was a, I was a music journalist at the time. So I started my career in journalism as a house music uh, uh, journalist. And so I would interview DJs at festivals and um, all these things. That's why I, I just love you so much. What was that? I said, that's a conversation I want to have one of these. Yeah. I, I, I want to dive deeper into this. <laughs> and, um, and so I was seeing what was going on at the festivals and it was during the 2012 election. And I kind of felt like I have my degree in marketing and sociology. So I, I, I have the way that my mindset has gone is to really become aware of these gatherings and these festivals that I've taught at and interviewed at and participated at and just seeing the 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 frequency of sound and how a lot of this can also, you know, we all go on these rides and these journeys together. And then there, there's that safety that also has to come with uh, the different kinds of frequencies and the hertz and how it affects us even on a molecular level through water frequencies and all these things. But I was I was seeing what was happening. And um, then I got struck like two weeks after Outside Lands and um it, like I would go into places and it's been challenging because a lot of what's happened since 
Um, the accident is I can go in crowds and I could feel everyone's energy in the places of where there's still trauma. Wow. So it's, <laughs> it's been, you know, there was a lot of that, like I said, so I've had to work with, um, alternative medicines. Probably the biggest thing that has helped me has been, um, ayahuasca and, um, working with peyote and other types of, um, medicinal mushrooms, which Oakland and neighboring town just decriminalized as well as Santa Cruz, um, for possession of. And so, you know, how, like, how do we even start to bring more of this um, research and development to make sure that Medicare for all isn't just a sick care plan, but truly a health care plan on these research and development and these results where people PTSD and vets? How can we start to to really have a proper conversation about this while also destigmatizing and um, reevaluating the Schedule One on the drug of war on wars? Great, the war on drugs. So glad that you raised that. And there's a couple of different layers here. I want to just sketch out the road and then I'll walk down. And so one layer <clears throat> relates to the Controlled Substances Act, and specifically, I just want to unpack cannabis and separate that out from the others and then connect how cognitive liberty stretches across different substances. And as a principle, it is one to which we have already been constitutionally committed and how that relates to legislation. And I want to start all that off by talking about history. The war on drugs is not only racist, it's not only a failure, it has been corrupt from the outset. People forget how it started. The reason we have two and a half million Americans in prison and paramilitary police departments across the United States is particularly because in the early 90s, the Central Intelligence Agency got away with running drugs into US cities to fund its rogue foreign policy in Nicaragua and Iran. This is not a conspiracy theory, it's all documented. In a prior era, we knew one part of it is the Iran-Contra affair, it's what helped basically reveal the sordid legacy of the Reagan administration for which it frankly, was never held politically responsible. And it also was revealed through the reporting of Gary Webb. Quick digression about Gary Webb. Many people don't know about him. Do you know about Gary Webb? Mm -mm. So Gary Webb was an investigative journalist at the San Jose Mercury News. And in the early 90s, he published the reports documenting the CIA's domestic drug running scheme. And he died of a suicide involving two gunshot wounds to the head. Figure that out. And the CIA posthumously admitted that his findings were substantially true. And uh, even while during his life, his newspaper publishers had repudiated his stories, they then acknowledged their veracity again after he was no longer with us. There's a thick book called Dark Alliance that unpacks this sordid history. And the point I'm trying to make here is that no one's ever paid a price for it. There are two and a half million Americans in prison effectively for crimes that the CIA committed and has never been held responsible for. And this is before the CIA started torturing detainees and you know, arming robotic drones and hacking the Senate to suppress evidence of its criminal trail and then appointing unapologetic international human rights abusers as the heads of the agency. That's where we're at now. And in my mind, the very first thing we have to do to enable access to plant medicine is close the criminal intelligence agency and ensure accountability for human rights violations that not only have undermined the human rights of thousands, if not millions of people around the world, toppled democratically elected governments, but continuing to accelerate climate crisis. People don't lay at the feet of the CIA 
responsibility for the climate crisis that the CIA has repeatedly accelerated by enabling armed resource plunder interventions. Okay, let me get off the CIA dead horse kicking train for <laughs> some other parts. Cognitive liberty is the principle that we as people have a right to determine our own mental states. We should be able to, and we are allowed under our constitutional framework to do whatever we want to ourselves. It's when our own behavior impacts someone else that the state gains the legitimate right to intervene. If our behavior only impacts ourselves, there's no legitimate basis for state participation. This is the very same rationale, entirely separate from privacy, on which I would ground reproductive freedom. I think that reproductive authoritarianism is profoundly presumptuous in the same way that cognitive authoritarianism is presumptuous. The state does not have a right to tell people what to do with our own bodies and with our own minds, full stop, period. To get there, the very first thing, well, the second thing we can do after closing the CIA is removing cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act. I think about this particularly in the context of the opioid epidemic. Right. Around the country, people are being prescribed prescription painkillers that then get them addicted. They end up looking for those painkillers on the private market. And in so many, entirely too many cases, they're ending up dead. And there are thousands of grieving families around the country, any one of which, I think every one of which I should say, could be better served should their family members have had access to safe plant medicine. I'm thinking particularly cannabis that might provide a less addictive alternative to the prescription painkillers like Oxycontin that have, that have fueled this crisis. Um, you mentioned particularly PTSD, and I think about veterans in that context. There's been plenty of encouraging research into the use of psilocybin, MDMA as therapeutic alternatives for those people. We need to destigmatize uh, that class of pharmaceuticals. And a lot of this, again, relates to the cognitive liberty principles, not just in CIA corruption and contriving a failed racist uh, predatory war on drugs, not just in the arbitrary and unjustifiable uh, inclusion of cannabis, especially on Schedule One of the Controlled Substance Act, which makes no sense. The idea that alongside heroin, it like it makes no sense to me. Not at all. It has acknowledged therapeutic benefits, which just render it just in that analysis alone disqualified for Schedule One. Yet it's there. And, and this is a point worth emphasizing. There is an established, existing, transpartisan consensus around the country that cannabis should not be criminalized. And yet we have a bipartisan consensus in Washington to criminalize it. This, I think, is another reflection of our democracy's willingness to put industrial interests before democracy, right? Our institutions are willing to take the corporate lobbying of whether it's alcohol and wine companies or pharmaceutical companies, there's a whole array of industries that share an interest in suppressing legal cannabis because it would prevent uh, competition from emerging to those industries. Uh, and, and yet we see our elected representatives taking their cues from those industrial interests rather than their own constituents. So again, it's challenging CIA corruption, insisting on uh, transparency into these executive violations, accountability of the CIA and closing that agency when we can, getting cannabis, off the Controlled Substances Act and embracing research into other kinds of uh, um, medical uses and therapeutic uses. I, I wanna emphasize therapeutic, medical, but then also recreational. It shouldn't have to be only therapeutic or medical to be legal, right? The whole point of cognitive liberty is that if you want to do it, if you're not hurting anyone else, it shouldn't matter to the state 
whether it's therapeutic, whether it's medical, whether it's recreational, it's not a legitimate criterion in the analysis. And at the end of the day, I would like to see police, to the extent we need to con continue employing them, guarding public safety and not people's choices. Right. Like you have a lot of these places. I know um, like Russell Brand's been really educating a lot more people on like these safe houses. If people need to shoot up that at least it's clean needles and bringing in more of this, this kind of awareness that, and everyone's like, oh, well, you're just feeding the problem. But the problem, like you said, is the addiction to the opioids and they can't afford these Oxycontin anymore. So then they switch to the heroin. And I've seen that happen with my own friends. And to see how we can, you know, this is a way that we address the problem and, and have more of a conversation because I think what what we're seeing as, you know, I just feel like there's been a World War III going on and it's been a war on consciousness for a long time. And being able to, again, have that liberty of radical expression, of working with these medicines, healing. For me, these medicines have helped me heal, not just for me, generationally tra generational trauma that is all inside of our DNA. It's a cellular memory that I've seen firsthand on you know, the thing is, uh, we're all like, as a woman, like I'm inside, we all are, but I'm inside my mother's womb in a way when she's inside her mother's womb into the eggs, as we all are part of these pieces. And to me, what plant medicines have allowed me to do is to heal severe generational trauma. And like I said, the millennials dark night of the soul generation, we're the ones that are saying it ends with me. We don't want to be in these vicious cycles of, okay, well, I couldn't handle this shit, so it's going to be passed on to my kids. I feel like that's why millennials are waiting a little longer to have children as well, because they want to have their shit together. They want to feel, they want to be present in their kids' lives. Our parents worked their asses off multiple jobs to, to pay for us to go to school, to have the roof over our head. And for me, I just think, um, I've just, I've just been such an advocate on speaking up on behalf of plant medicines. Um, something that I've had to heal within my own because coming from a family of immigrants, it was always like, be good to not get kicked out kind of a mentality. And so a huge part of the healing for me post lightning was to reclaim my, my consciousness and my own power in that sense, rather than having that fear mongering that can be passed down, not just societally, but generationally of feeling safe. If we're not feeling safe, this is root chakra. Like this is the development of our subconscious mind. Those first primal ages is what allows us to feel safe, to go out there and to be of service, to show up in the world, to speak our truth. If you are still having the subconscious mind that is so uh, plummeted by fear and the fear mongering and the ancestral stuff that, that we, we've absorbed, in this young age, this is what continues the vicious cycle of um, of wanting to experience a freedom, but not knowing how to get there. Maybe two thoughts I'd offer, and then I, I think I might need to run. Uh, yeah. One of them related to, you mentioned about the war on consciousness. I want to relate that to indigenous rights. And then you also mentioned millennials and child rearing and some uh, patterns observable across the generation, which I think are indicative of even perhaps uh, more alarming social trends that we should think about. So first, just on this idea, um, uh, well, now I forgot what the first one was. There was millennials and parenting, and the first part was 
We were talking about uh, the war on consciousness. Thank you. Right. So when we talk about the war on consciousness through the lens of access in the United States to traditional plant medicines, to some extent, we overlook what I think is the more vicious, certainly longer standing and, and frankly, more destructive legacy of genocides that we have already perpetrated around the world and that are continuing with our active participation today. There is an ecocide right now underway in Brazil where Bolsonaro is uh, killing indigenous people who have been traditionally the guardians of not only our forests, uh, but also plant medicines. This, the, the coup in Brazil that led to Bolsonaro taking office very likely included CIA participation. We can't prove that because the documents aren't public. We can't prove it largely because Nancy Pelosi denies members of Congress outside her handpicked deputies, staff members with security clearance that would enable them to see behind the layers of executive secrecy. One reason we don't know that these documents about these documents is because Senator Dianne Feinstein seven years ago took to the Senate floor under the Obama administration to decry a constitutional crisis because the CIA then had hacked the Senate to steal documents uh, that were indicative of the CIA's human rights abuses. So, you know, I want to go back here to the reigning in the CIA piece because I, I fear that cognitive liberty and the movement for it can have a very privileged U.S.-focused lens. And I, in my mind, that's as a post-colonial liberation agent, I'm much more concerned about making sure that we get our boots off the necks of indigenous people first. That's one way to preserve not just access to plant medicines, but simply just to preserve the plant medicines themselves before they're either driven to extinction or culturally taken from us by the people who understand how to use them or make them, you know, mm -hmm. being the, the targets of genocide. Um, and then separately, when we think domestically, particularly about millennials delaying child rearing choices and the demonstrable decline in birth rates across the millennial generation, this I would describe as the empirical empirically verifiable demonstration of the failures of corporate capitalism. The reason people aren't having kids to a large extent today is because it is economically impossible for many working people to consider rearing children, especially under an era of predatory corporate so-called healthcare. Having a kid costs a lot of money. Kids get sick. Kids need books. Kids need opportunities. You want to send your kids to school. All of those things cost money, which today in our society, because we don't provide these things as social goods, when people don't have, they can't pursue those choices. And one thing Medicare for all could do is expand reproductive justice. We think about reproductive freedom through the lens of uh, freedom from reproductive authoritarianism. That's one locus of reproductive justice. Another aspect of reproductive justice is ensuring the people who want to have kids can viably have kids. And one critical uh, necessary part of that equation is ensuring access to prenatal care and postnatal care that at the moment people don't have as a matter of life. And, and paternal leave. Absolutely, that's huge. And family leave for other reasons. I mean, you shouldn't have the, the, you know, if you have an elderly parent who gets sick, that should be the basis for an opportunity to seek medical leave. At the moment, we very narrowly construe the reasons that people should have opportunities for family leave and the birth of a child should not be the only one. Um, you know, we talked about a lot of different issues. I'll just invite your listeners who want to learn more about our campaign to visit us online at shahidforchange.us. We're quite active on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Shahid for Change. I'm looking forward to replacing Nancy Pelosi's 
the voice in the House for California's 12th Congressional District. And I so appreciate the chance to be with you today. Thank you. I just have one last question. How has a burner impacted you to show up and to really bring in more of that unity here? How has a burner or being? How has you being a burner really brought forth, like being come aware of the unity and the interconnectedness of this process? I appreciate that question. You know, the, the sort of essential unity of all things is uh, something that for me was made most inescapably clear when my mother passed away. Uh, and I feel much closer to her now than I did even when she was with us. And it sort of, for me, demonstrates that principle. I've also seen it demonstrated in less palpable ways on the playa and in the countercultural spaces where I've seen people come together across different walks of life and nations to share everything from transcendental moments to, you know, the shirts off our backs to the food in our bags, you know, and sharing as a principle is something that I find very compelling. It's one reason why I don't know if you've seen the documentary about Mr. Rogers, but you know, but it made me weep oh, yeah. controllably for two hours. And that principle of sharing, I think, is a really critical one. And among the principles at Burning Man that we commit ourselves to are communal effort, uh, collective participation, or civic participation, I should say, um, and, and these kinds of principles about around taking care of each other. Um, and on the playa, we also emphasize radical self-reliance. I don't think that works so well in the public policy context. I'm very eager to make sure that we are sharing for instance, our doctors and our medicines, um, that we are sharing our resources so that nobody has to sleep outside in the rain, uh, that we are sharing our opportunities. Um, uh, and, and I think that's that for me is a critical principle that I've experienced in those spaces that I wouldn't necessarily say it drove my public policy vision, but it was an, an opportunity to experience the demonstration of principles that many of us have long sought. I mean, the idea that an entire city of 60,000 people can get by for a week without needing to exchange any money is revolutionary and it's not meant to be scalable. I think it is spectacular in the sense of not being a scalable infrastructure, but that all notwithstanding, I think it's taught many different people who've experienced that space opportunities to relate to each other in different ways instead of perceiving each other as objects of competition. You know, I think many of us can see strangers as simply friends that we haven't met yet. And, uh, you know, that's how I see my neighbors and, and I'm glad to be seen that way by my neighbors as well. I love that. And thank you, everyone. Go check it out. Go support Shahid Harry. And even if you're not in San Francisco, you can donate and you can support and share the message. And I'm so I'm rooting for you, brother. I'm excited to see this. We can talk all day. Thank you so much for answering the call and for truly leading us to this victory of of liberty and pure pure radical expression of, of this human experience. Thank you, Sabrina. It's great to be with you. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll be seeing more of you soon. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning into this powerful episode of the Sovereign Society podcast. To keep this conversation flowing, I invite you to join us over at the Sovereign Society private Facebook group and to follow us over at Sovereign Society podcast on Instagram. If you want to keep up with me, subscribe to my YouTube channel where you can watch these episodes and so much more. I welcome you to come on over and say hey on Instagram at Sabrina Riccio. And if you love these conversations, please support the podcast by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on iTunes. To share the love, all you got to do is search Sovereign Society Podcasts. And of course, if you're ready for more, stay tuned for next week because I've got a whole new episode coming your way. Take care. Satnam.